Welcome to Touch Podcast, conversations of spirit and body, and happy Women's History Month. This is Ryan. And this is Nate. Today on Touch Podcast, uh, we're talking to Dr. Tina Schirmer Sellers, and I'm very excited about this. Uh, She is an associate professor in the School of Psychology, Family, and Community at Seattle Pacific University. She's a family therapist, medical family therapist, sex therapist, researcher, speaker, author, and thought leader and founder of the Northwest Institute of Intimacy and author of Sex, Shame, and the Conservative Church. Uh, The reason why I'm so excited is that I think her research is is so important. It bridges a gap for for me and maybe for a lot of you. Um, If you were raised in the church community and you were taught that sex outside of marriage or sex in other contexts outside of religion is shameful, and, and now you're having a hard time with your libido, um, her research has the data that bridges the gap between traumatizing sexual shame and the signs of having experienced physical trauma. You know, Ryan, you haven't said much about your story on this podcast. Why, why, are, you doing, why are you doing this with me, man? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, to keep it simple, you know, the first year of our marriage, was I think the worst years of our lives. And um, it was because of the difficulties in our relationship around sex and shame and what the church was teaching and what our expectations of each other were that weren't matching up with reality. And that led to depression and anxiety and it just got all tangled up with theology. And, you know, and it's all the things that, you know, our next, next guest will be talking about um, the experience she has had through the last 20 years with her students. You now, Cindy and I have a really strong relationship now, um, but those first couple of years were really, really rough. Um, I, I shared this, the, some of the issues we had with some seminary students when I was working at the seminary. And for the next six years, I had male students coming to me regularly with very similar, similar stories to ours. And, you know, and come to find out come to find out that the kind of problems we had were very common and the the cause at least part of the cause you know rolls up to this purity stuff and so long story short I've written a book it'll come out next year Um, you know we've been working on this documentary hopefully that'll be coming out next year and we're on this podcast connecting people who have also made this discovery who have found solutions who are finding solutions and um yeah and we just decided that instead of waiting till next year for all of this kind of stuff to come out why don't we start a podcast and start airing the interviews and the conversation we're having so people could realize that one they were not alone and two that there were avenues for them to find wholeness and healing in their lives so we're going to turn to Tina Shermer Sellers. She's going to really be able to open our eyes about the, the things that have been going on on this topic at her, at her school and how she's been able to help people. Ah, I knew you were going to do it. Hey, Nate. Sorry about that link getting too late. It's okay. Hey, so I'm driving and I'm talking to my Bluetooth, so I just want to make sure if I'm sounding okay first. Uh, you sound terrible, so I'm going to mute you. Okay. <laughs> really good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
authentically, I just want to, I, I want to talk to her and just like, hey, so what do you think about me, right? You know, I, I want to, I want to jump into that. <laughs> Are you, you're looking for free therapy, aren't you? <laughs> well, we can talk offline. We're all looking for free therapy, that's for sure. And she's written a terrific book, one I have actually read, called titled Sex, God, and the Conservative Church, Erasing Shame from Sexual Intimacy. Uh, Dr. Sellers, thank you so much for being on Touch Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Well, this is a great title, and I don't want to do any spoilers. I want those to be in your voice. So tell us what uh, this book is about and why in the world did you write it? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, it wasn't because I thought the funnest thing to do was to take on the church and how it's managed sex. That was not why I I did it. (laughs) Actually, you know, we'll probably get more into the story later, but I had been teaching the graduate human sexuality course in the marriage and family therapy program at Seattle Pacific for well over 20 years, I trained family therapists. And one of our beliefs in our program is that you're only ever as good a therapist as you know what your own personal stories are. Because in therapy, you want your therapist to know where they begin and end and their clients begin and end. And so throughout the program, we have our therapists reflect on their own stories, their own family of origin stories or whatever. So in the sexuality course, I have them reflect on their sexual stories, their sexual autobiographies, if you will. And so I've read well over 500 of these in my career. And around the early 2000s, I started to notice that there became a dramatic increase in the sexual shame of my students' stories. So that was manifesting itself in the amount of humiliation and disgust and body shame, body hatred, how they viewed, how they thought about their developing sexuality, how they felt about their developing sexuality, how they felt about what they had done as they were growing up and what they even had not done as they were growing up and the naivete about what they had thought and felt and done. Like they just didn't even know what was normal. And, but they had felt like perverts about these things. And I thought, whoa, what in the world has been happening out there? I I just actually was just blown away. But the way that they felt about themselves was so sad to me. I mean, I literally would read these papers and cry. And then I would march into my chair's office and I would cry on her couch and say, I don't know what's happening out there with these kids, but something horrible is happening. And there was this parallel process between what so many of my students were experiencing and kids that had actually been sexually abused as children. And I was especially seeing this with kids who had grown up in conservative religious homes. And I knew that the church had no idea that whatever it was that they were doing was in fact actually manifesting itself as sexual abuse. So I began to ask lots of questions of students and finding out, tell me what happened. Tell me what was happening in your youth groups. Tell me what you were being told. Tell me what you were writing or what you were reading. Um, And slowly, I began to understand 
what we later called the purity movement. And I just didn't know that it was happening. Um, my kids were a little older, you know, um, or I guess I should say they were a little younger than the purity movement. They didn't fall in the middle of it. You know, I grew up in the Jesus movement, which was very, very different. And my kids were, you know, they kind of fell on either side, kind of bookends. We were bookends. And um, so I just didn't know about it. And uh, so it was so shocking. And my childhood, I grew up in a Swedish immigrant home that um, my family was incredibly comfortable about bodies and sexuality. And I learned about it in really healthy, normal ways. And so I, there was this huge contrast between the way I felt about myself and my family growing up and then what I was watching my students. And I just thought, this is not what God intended at all. And it was literally heartbreaking. And I thought, I, I have to do something. And, and that's what it was. I mean, I just thought somebody's got to start saying something. And I, in 2006, because I started speaking about it just, just a little bit around town, I eventually had an editor come to me from an online journal called The Other Journal, Intersection of Theology and Culture. And he said, I hear you should write an article. And I said, I don't know. I said, I'm sort of afraid if I say just what I've been seeing, I'm afraid it's, it's going to be hard for some of your readers to hear. And so I wrote an article called Christians Caught Between the Sheets, How an Abstinence-Only Ideology Hurts Us. And I, I started to look, had anybody been saying anything? And I actually found that actually going back into the 70s, there'd been people like James Nelson back at Union Theological Seminary that had been doing some writing challenging the original, what I'll call the original Christian ethic that was from the mind-body split, you know, saying that the spirit was good and the body was bad. And he had done some writing and then some of his protégés had done some writing. So there'd been some academic writing that had been done, but really nothing else. But it allowed me to have some references to refer to in my article. So I wrote about it. That article went viral. I started hearing from people from around the globe. That's when I realized I was touching a nerve. That began about a nine-year research writing process that culminated in the book. Wow. Yeah, I, I worked on a seminary campus and did a, a, a small talk in a class once about a, a similar experience that um, that my wife and I had, where it just like you said, we just did not know what normal was. To make a long story short, we felt where my inter story intersects your book is that uh, I had gone from being Ryan, the really nice guy, the a good guy, to Ryan, a bad guy. Right. So yeah, so your your book is. I wish we'd had your book 18 years ago, but we're really glad that it's, it's out here now. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Nate, did you want to jump in there? Well, well um, as, as you're sharing your story, I just can't help but, um, but just notice my feelings and my emotions. And it's, um, there's a lot of shock and pain um, and I just want to allow some space here to share that because if there's some of our listeners who are hearing these words, I mean, um, so I'm, I'm feeling the weight of that and the weight of my own pain. Uh, and, and I'm just still listening. 
um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when you start talking about equating um, what was intent, what was intended to be a a very sweet and pure and wholesome sort of Bible study movement, when you start equating that with the impact of of sexual trauma, like physical trauma, mm-hmm. I imagine there's some people who are not very happy about you equating those things. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's. It's a much bigger story. It's a much more complex story than than most of us understand or understood. Um, and on the surface, the prevailing story on the surface is parents are trying to protect their children. It's it's out of love, and they're being told at their church level at the church level. This is what you want to communicate. <clears throat> and for centuries, um, we have silent or silent and shaming homes around sexuality, then leading to the next generation that are silent and silent and shaming and silent and silent and shaming, right? And so they look to their church to say, well, what do I do? You know, and the church says, do this to protect your children, do this to protect your children. Right. And so that generation got do this, you know, communicate this, you know, this is what you say. What's unfortunate is, is that you have to pull back the sheets a little bit further to find out what was really going on. And what you see when you do that. And I mean, there's obviously, I just used one metaphor. You can use many metaphors, but I I think what I did with the book is I asked the question, did Christianity ever get it right with, with how it was talking about a sexual ethic? Did our sexual ethic ever produce more love, more grace, more justice? Did it ever manifest in people being able to do intimacy really well? So that more love, more justice, more mutuality, more equality was actually manifesting in marriages and in families. So that more education was being passed down and more wholeness was manifesting in marriages and in families and in children and thus producing then more marriages, more families, more children that were more whole, right? So I went through history and looked at that. And in fact, that never was the case. So what I so then I actually asked another question. Well, on the Judeo-Christian line, on the Abrahamic line, did we ever see anything sex positive? And then I found some incredibly beautiful stories on the Judeo line. And I talk about those in the book. And so there's this beautiful history that we actually come from. We can see this relentless God trying to help us understand that our sexuality is good, that it has a purpose, and that that purpose is to help us be drawn into being seen as beloved by God and that we're to experience that both in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to an other. And I can talk about that later, but that is becomes very, very clear when you get deep into the history. But the other thing that you find out when you're looking at our Christian history is that you see that the socio-political climate of our lives actually influenced how we were doing 
our sexuality in our cultures more than we realize. So throughout history, you would have these times that things loosened up a little bit and people were more relaxed. And then you would have these times where there would be an either an economic downturn or a um, some kind of a plague that would happen or something else that was frightening. And then there would be the people in power and control would clamp down and there would be this tightening of the sexual ethic of that time. And we can see that throughout history, right? So we came out of this most recent time, we came out of the 60s and 70s, where there was this big, huge opening up, right out of the 50s. Then we had this big, huge opening up. We had second wave feminism, right? And then we went into the 70s. And um, so we had the 60s and the 70s, second wave feminism, that upset things a little bit. Then we had an economic downturn. Then we had, um, when we had second wave feminism, and then we had AIDS. So we had all this stuff that we could feed fear with. Underneath it, we had some very, very interesting um, consumerist things going on having to do with capitalism. And we had the merging of the religious right and the moral majority on the socio-political platform. And that merged church and state. And so at a, at a political level, there was this deep conservatism that joined together, feeding into the fear that was happening on the public level. And right at that point, we had a gro the growing beginning of what became the... Um, purity movement or the true love weights by the early capping at the early 1990s, you had that whole thing happen. The same time we began abstinence only education starting in 1981, growing in billions and billions of dollars stopping in 2000 or uh, yeah, 2005, there was $273 billion requested that year. So that was also amping up. That was the merging of church and state. So it is not simply a religious thing. It's a socio-political religious thing. And it's always been that when you look at that from a historical standpoint. And I often say to people, if you really want to understand the bigger picture, you've really got to understand the socio-political waves too. And that's not at all to downplay the importance of our faith because it's not i mean my faith is super important to me but you can't also can't be naive enough to say that our socio-political climate doesn't shape how we think and feel because it does so i'll often say to people if, you, if you're living in this time and your faith is really important to you it's useful to read books like frank schaefer's sex mom and god because that book tells you a lot what was happening sociopolitically in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and into 2000s. You know, so for me, that helped me understand how we got to the purity movement, how my students got hurt, but how I didn't see it because in my teens, I was experiencing something very different. I was, you know, and then in my 20s, I was, you know, went to Forest Home and I was teaching in Forest Home, but I didn't feel it. You know, because I wasn't, I didn't understand what was happening politically.
because it was all happening behind closed doors. So it's been really helpful for me to understand the bigger picture, to fly up to 30,000 feet and say, oh, of course, I see the bigger picture. Yeah, that is really helpful uh, to see that. I, I don't know that I would have naturally connected the uh, sort of the rise and abstinence-only secular education, or even a, even perhaps even as a precursor to the um, church stuff. Uh, right, that's, I, that's as very I've been helpful. Going around and speaking, this is one of the things that's happened for me. I'll be talking about the book, and I'll have people say to me, "I didn't grow up in a religious home, but I got all this same education in my public school." You have a section in your book titled The Irony of Shame. And part of it, you talk about uh, what what plays out in conservative Christian circles um, is a, an, an unreachable, unreachable standards mixed with judgment. And, that, and you're making a point about how then we pass that on to our kids. So tell us a little bit about that mechanism of how we internalize that shame. Um, and then, like, as a therapist, how do you begin to help people un- unwind that? Right. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So shame is something that we internalize and we begin to internalize it often, in, in many cases, pre-verbally. Um, and it often does happen through the mechanism of our, what I'll call sexual or sensual curiosity. Um, And if you've been around little ones, you'll see this, right? They are all about, I I believe we come out of the womb, hardwired for connection and pleasure. An infant immediately is turning towards the breast. And it's not because the milk has come down because it doesn't come down for a couple of days, right? They are just turning towards that smell, the feeling, all of that, right? They want that connection and pleasure. And we know if you don't um, give enough loving touch to toddlers as they're small, they'll actually suffer neurological damage. Walk down the halls of an Alzheimer's unit. You don't have to have memory. And you're going to see the elderly actually still seeking connection and pleasure. It's just in us. God has wired it in us. So with little ones, they're touching things, grabbing things, sticking them in their mouth, in their ears, their nose, anywhere. It does not take long before they find out that God put a whole lot of nerve endings in a couple of very special places that are in their diaper. And we're going to pause this conversation right here. We're going to come back in the next episode for the second part of our conversation with Dr. Tina Shermer-Sellers, where she's going to begin to give some really practical ways folks who've been impacted by this kind of internalized shame can find help. You can find us at touchpodcast.com. You can subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. 